Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. longest-running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine, and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody, it's just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday evening and this is Midweek Motorsport. I'm John Hindhoff uh, at Hindhoff Towers this week as we uh, settle in uh, to, well, what looked to be a beautiful spring but it's turned cold again here in the UK and we're back on normal time zones so we're all back together again as the clock's changed at the weekend. We're on British summer time, everyone else is on daylight saving time who has it. So welcome back to a slightly more normal time on your clock or watch. Up in London, our executive producer is Tim Gray. Good evening, Tim. I've never changed time zones, or not this season anyway. Did you just not bother? No, I haven't uh, been out of the country, haven't been to Australia, haven't been to Dubai, haven't been to Sebring or Daytona or even Mugello. but, but But your clocks must have gone forward at the weekend. Uh, I keep the clock in my bedroom permanently on British summertime and the clock on my oven permanently on uh, GMT. Yeah, I did so that. I never have to change them. I've got a, I've got a Casio, very nice little Casio automatic digital watch that I do the same on. I have that on twin time, one's always on summertime, one's on GMT. Anyway, on a packed show tonight. In the studio we have uh, four time zones on the clock. Oh, do you? Yes. I've only got one and it's automatically changed. Uh, on a packed programme tonight, we have what? We have all the usual features. Excellent. We'll be looking back at some racing from the weekend. We'll be looking forward to some racing in the future. Uh, we'll be talking to some guests. Uh, and we'll be... Uh, can we get out the uh, film music as well? We may have to get out uh, the film music because in the uh, second hour of tonight's programme, our big interview isn't a big interview. Well, it kind of is, but it's three big interviews. Uh, because we'll be looking at the documentary Hurley, along with Hurley Haywood, the Hurley in the title, as well as its producer and director uh, who will be joining us, as well as the executive producer, uh, and that is Patrick Dempsey. Sorry, I heard him. I was was busy trying to look at something else uh, when I did that. My apologies. Um, So that's all coming in Hour 2. Derek Dodge is the... A producer and director. Patrick Dempsey is the executive producer and Hurley Haywood is the man whose story is being told. And that's our big interviews at 9 o'clock. Uh, we'll also have guests and contributors here plenty tonight. In the second half of the show, Shea Adam will bring us some of the American news as we catch up with NASCAR. The Look, actually, the entry list for... The Bubba Grand Prix at Long Beach should be out as well. We'll be in Long Beach next week for the show. 
uh, and the next round of the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. And for those who perhaps didn't quite catch it, and our IMSA radio coverage of the Mobile One Sebring 12 Hours uh, presented by Advance Auto Parts, Scott Atherton talking about the future of DPI and LMP 2020 in our race show. We thought we'd uh, run that and have a little listen to that in the perhaps in the cool delight of day. Also, we've got a driver announcement coming up in the first hour and Declan Brennan will be back with us as we talk MotoGP. That's all to come in the next two hours and we've got a bonus programme tonight as we stay live beyond 10 o'clock. RJ O'Connell from uh, Super GT World will be joining us as we look forward to Japanese Super GT and Super Taiku. I know there's already been one round of Super Taiku. Uh, RJ will be joining us after 10 o'clock tonight, straight after this show. But before we get into anything else and before we even do our housekeeping tonight, I'm afraid we have some sad news to report, Tim. Uh, yes, the death on Saturday of Jim Russell. Jim was the founder of the world-famous racing schools which bear his name. He died while recovering from a hip replacement operation. He was 98. Although he came to motor racing late, he achieved great success. His first race was at the age of 32, but within seven seasons, he'd won more than 80 races and the British Formula 3 Championship three times. His driving career came to an end following an accident at Le Mans in 1959, but he'd already set up the first of the Jim Russell racing schools at his local track Snetterton by then. Drivers to have come through his schools include Derek Bell, Jacques Villeneuve, Danny Sullivan and Emerson Fittipaldi who raced in a Formula 3 car sponsored by the Jim Russell Racing School. Russell was also responsible for providing the cars for the, and drivers for the film Grand Prix. James Garner, another graduate of the racing school. Jim's brother-in-law, Ralph Furman, was a former mechanic at the Snetterton Racing School before he set up Van Diemen. He said today... Jim was a brilliant boss to have and was full of love, life and laughs. He was just superb at spotting talented drivers. He must have launched a thousand racing careers over his time. The Australian driver, Frank Gardner, who won Le Mans and the British Saloon Car Championship, uh, once said, Jim Russell taught me everything I know and I know nothing. <laughs> Jim Russell, who died on Saturday. Yeah, that's going to be a big loss to motor racing. Uh, thank you, Tim, for that. Before we go to our news headlines, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we've got Chris Suku, who is on... Uh, apologies for absence tonight. He's in the future. He's just done a 600-kilometre round trip to a phenomenal local supplier. So I'm looking forward to the f- podcast. Uh, Kevin Payne is listening in tonight. Very excited about the uh, Hurley film, the documentary. He said, I bought Hurley's book and had him sign it, the Rolex 24, in January, carefully transported all around Florida for a few weeks and brought it back to the UK. Now I need to find some time to fully... It's a bit of a tome, isn't it? But it's worth it. Certainly is worth it. Uh, Neil Gardner... for excess baggage? Well, it's it's weighty. It is weighty. Uh, Neil Gardner is out, out to recuperate after three brilliant pieces of artwork uh, and... Uh, he was getting those ready for a big event at Donington Park yesterday. He says, the adrenaline's worn off now. I might not get out. I could fall asleep before I head out the door. Hello to Paul Dunk, who's listening uh, tonight as well. I hope the Dunklet's all right and the rest of the family. John Daggett. Hello, John. Nice to know you're listening tonight. Uh, Otto says, here's something for you to debate this evening. Will Leclerc be F1 world champion before Max Verstappen? Oof. 
We might throw that into our Formula One. Uh, Gary Taylor is uh, setting up the uh, Midweek Motorsport Weight Loss Programme. I'm starting it tonight. Downloading and tuning in on a long Devon Hill walk to shift my excess rate. It worked before and I am to lose at least a stone before the 24 hours of Le Mans. Then enjoy the Aston Martin hospitality without any guilt. I like it, Gary. Let us know how you get cut out the starchy carbs, man. Honestly, makes it easy. Uh, it's um, There's a great... It's called Eat Yourself Happy. Uh, and it's a, it's a great... It's not a diet book as such. It's just a, an idea of how to do things uh, from our, one of our favourite um, Michelin star uh, chefs, Tom Courage. Alexander Orkin, no AFAs from the present. Looking forward to the show. Uh, pasta dish with a bit of sausage and a glass of New Zealand Pinot Noir. Cliff Norris might be late joining tonight, trying to get the car out of Bruntingthorpe after attending the Volvo 600. No lap records beaten, but a Guinness World Record smash. 600 Volvos in one place at one time was the world record. Well over 1,500, I believe, at the weekend. Well done to Emma Crawley and everybody else who was down there as well. Mike Sargent is tuning into the office uh, after bunkering down from OT shift, overtime shift as well. Uh, is it 8pm yet, says the real Shim Glakey. Uh, heaping praise on Lando and Leclerc before pouring scorn on Renault. And David Harvey Dice says, I've just finished last week's podcast so I can listen live tonight. And James Brown, get on up, get on down. Uh, no FAs tonight tuning in, rehearsing for a presentation tomorrow. It's not a presentation on motorsports. Otherwise, no rehearsal would be necessary. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Uh, and our top story tonight is... What, oh, by the way, um, at Specutainment, if you'd like to get in touch. Our top story tonight is what, Tim? Well, what a story it could have been. A young driver, second-generation driver, taking his first victory at the highest level. And then with just a few miles to go, it all fell apart. It's difficult to accept, but that's the nature of the sport, said Alvin Evans. <laughs> I think it happened on a straight piece of road, a hole or a piece of stone that had lifted. I felt it straight away, but trying to drive on to see if we could minimise the time loss. It was Thierry Nerville who arrived at the podium first, unaware that a puncture for the Welshman in the final power stage, with whom he'd been swapping the lead all weekend, had given him victory. Sebastian Ogier, sorry, Sebastian Ogier, also passed Evans in that final stage to claim second. So uh, Thierry Nerville, winner of the Tour de Course 2019 from Ogier, Elvin Evans third, Danny Sordo was fourth, then uh, Timo Suninen and Ert Tanak rounding out the top six. And that means that Thierry Nerville uh, leads the World Rally Championship by two points over Sebastian Ogier, mm. with Tanak a further three points behind. Excellent. And once again, you have managed to find a story that threw us all off just slightly. Good uh, evening to Nick Damon. Uh, hang on. No, no. Let's, if we're going to do Nick Damon, can we do it properly? The the listener expects a certain degree of consistency uh, from us all. So are we going to do a Formula One story now? I'd like to introduce to... Nick Damon first. All right. Introduce him. Good evening, Nick Damon. Well, do I say good evening or do I say I love, love, what's my part now? What's my motivation? Yeah, you say you've I thrown them out. You should have gone, and our next story is about F1. It might not be, though. hooray, and then you go to talk about it, is our F1 correspondent. That's all the usual features, but now it's gone now. It's just too late. It's gone. You've ruined it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's just no point in carrying on. Feeling sad for uh, Elvin, Nick? Um, I I am 
distraught and heartbroken. I couldn't. I genuinely couldn't care less. Um, but I'm very glad for Thierry Newville, whose surname I couldn't spell or pronounce. Uh, yes. Meanwhile, Terry Formula Newton. One was in Bahrain. Uh, for Hooray! that, where pole position went to Robert Kubica. 11 years ago, but not this year, where he qualified last. <laughs> and how far off the pace? Graphically, a very, very long way. Yeah, several Come inches. On, Nick, we, we, uh, we rehearsed this on Sunday. Try again. Yes. How far off the pace was the Williams? Sunday is like so long ago. Oh, right. No, that's how far off the pace he was. Remember, we were going to leave a full 1.2 seconds or whatever it was every time. Ah, so we went. Nice. So when we when we mentioned Team Awful... Williams. Yep. That's how far off the pace they were. Have you forgotten that already? Really, heavens it was above. Very busy day, and I actually watched the Grand Prix after we had that conversation at the match. Mm. Let's gloss over that. Although I did watch it, I did gird my loins and watch it again yesterday just to see the Grand Prix. You watched it twice. It no, wasn't good I watched. Grand Prix. I, must... I watched the football. Yeah. I watched the football. Um. So Williams, team awful. Williams were very awful. At the weekend, let's start at the back of the grid because they were miles off the back of the grid. And I, you... I have to start with a question for you, John. Yes, I have a question. Yes, did you fall asleep? No, I didn't. I watched the whole it thing. It was a brilliant race, wasn't it? No, wasn't it brilliant? Wasn't it brilliant? No. What was not brilliant about it then? Uh... What I, th- I think Nick, want? I think John should uh, refrain from answering that question until after we've also talked about Formula 2 because there is a parallel there. I didn't say Formula 2, I'm afraid. I didn't have the disc space. You'll understand the parallel, though. Uh, I just... I... The, there was plenty of things to talk about in Formula 1. Everybody was going on about how many overtakes there were, which... Um, okay. I'm not, I'm, no, because no, it's the same as when Formula E write down their number of overtakes, when most of them happen because someone has crashed into the back of a car when the person should have been excluded because it's just a crash fest this year. No, the point about it was you had everything. You had drama, you had pathos, you had new guns, you had making their way, you had the... the Laughter, tears, making everything. Yeah, I mean, it, it was... It was the entire microcosm of F1 in in an hour and a half. It was fabulous. Everything was fabulous. But I will not truck any complaint that wasn't a fabulous 90 or 100 minutes of entertainment because it was. Mm. Well, I, I disagree with you. I enjoyed the rally more. And um, <laughs> they, they, no, I, there, there was some interest. Um, no, 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 no. You, 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 let's, let's be really honest about this. If you, if you, you end up writing... Four or five headlines. Let's start with the first one. Obviously, Leclerc's emergence. Then the second headline, Leclerc's desperate bad luck. Third headline, Vettel, oops, I've done it again. Fourth headline, Hamilton, brilliant talent. That's no, but, well, you've missed one there. You've, and these the aren't headlines. Is, None of these are the, headlines. And, and the fifth one is, oh, look, back to the old Valtteri again. No, but none of those should be worthy of a headline. If it was a proper race, no, there would be bylines in it. The only one that was of any real interest was, right, stay behind Vettel for two laps. Yeah, OK, right, I will. Oops, I seem to have gone past him. And remember what I said right at the end of last season in the review, and I've said it at the start of this season, Vettel's head's going to explode. Leclerc is going to wipe the floor with them the whole season. I've said that. It's still not going to be enough for him to win the championship. That still belongs to Hamilton. And I don't need to watch the rest of the season to work that out, Tim. And Nick? Well, I actually said to you, I think, uh, while we were over in uh, Italy, I said, uh, I said, I'm going to be before we actually were on the way. I said, Ferrari be one and two. 
um, this weekend, and they were one and two in qualifying. And if they'd had some luck and a, gen- and a driver with a decent brain, they'd have been one and two in the race. But Who won the race? Lewis Hamilton, yep. because he As I is predicted. the best driver in the world. As in I any, predicted. In any sport, Put any the pen down. motor racing, Put the in pen any down. way, he is the best. <laughs> and, and he won because he, he. This is the point. You see, this is where people. This is where true great driving comes. When you. He may have inherited the win, but he only inherited it because he's in the position to do that because oh, he pressurised the second completely car. Completely agree. Completely agree. And the pace of that car was super reborn Valtteri's pace, which obviously he was half a minute behind, but he, he did lose a few seconds with a with a problem with his front wing. But even so, he was 20 seconds behind Hamilton. Because, and what did I say after the last Grand Prix? That'll well, be Valtteri Bottas' only fine. victory of the season. Oh, no, I think he went at Russia. He's very good in Russia. Very good in Russia, okay. Valtteri. Uh, now, the, 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 other, the other headline, as you were calling it, is Oops, I did it again. Not Britney Spears, mm. uh, but, of, of course, that was Sebastian Vettel. No touch... Just another mistake. He pinched the corner. Yep. You could argue, you could argue, and I, and there will be people who are arguing this that that Lewis um, went off the track to make the pass, and if Lewis hadn't been on the outside, that Vettel wouldn't have had to pinch the corner and therefore crash. That's fine. Outside turn four is no issue. They know it's no issue. It's never been an issue. So mm. it's not. It's not. There's no, there's no point even bringing that up because that is a not an issue there's no it's point like, in even attempting it is there no because it's not it's not it's not even it's never been a problem it's never been if he something that does have to be brought run, up but you lose some yeah but i mean just something go, that I think, has to be brought up is the mustache i'm sorry it is the <laughs> elephant in the room it is i i can't disagree with that i think there was a the, I, I think i read the the uh the translation of the italian press which obviously was not particularly um uh um <laughs> Positive. Well, on and one of them, I think it was Corriere de Sera, said that, that Fettel, Fettel needs to go see a psychologist and shave the moustache off. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, that, I, he is he is trying to look like a character out of Allo Allo just to fit in with the popularity I, of, of Tizai Leclerc, isn't he? I know he's a, he's a Battle of Britain pilot, isn't he? Absolutely, that that older uh, chin, uh, um, top lip warmer. But just saying about on, on the Vettel thing, I think we, I said, and you you obviously brought it forward. It seemed your prophecy came right, but I, I think I said in the, in the preview that you know I thought that Vettel could make the most of the first four or five races, but by the halfway through the season he'd be outpaced by Leclerc, and it's it's happening earlier. Now I do obviously Leclerc is going to have not so good weekends because he is still learning, uh, and. But he was he was great this weekend, but he didn't win because of a, of a reliability issue. It was like the, se- the second time that the uh, Ferrari have dropped a cylinder in three years. The same and, thing. And they're in- going to run the engine, the same engine in China, to find out exactly why it went wrong. Well, in first practice, yeah. Well, I mean, the, what it is is, 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 is it, 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 they dropped the cylinder. The cylinder came on running. So it didn't. It wasn't anything me- mechanical. There were bits of Ferrari engine all over the, the Bahrain back straight. But it, therefore, it's a spark plug or a coil plug. It's something electrical which wasn't firing the spark effectively. Um, which they did the same thing in in uh, Suzuka two years ago. They had a, a cylinder go on them again. So whether it's, hopefully it's not the same supplier, they'd be in serious trouble. But it's you know it's realistically you know if you if you looked at that race, you could see this as you said, you're quite right. This 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 really does show the pecking order in F1. Yeah, um, agree. The, with the one outlier and uh, being um, Red Bull. Now Red Bull seems to be suffering from McLarenitis. Because um, do you remember two years Both ago? McLaren's in the top McLaren, ten, by the way. Two years ago, McLaren said we've got the best chassis anywhere, and it's just that pesky Honda engine holding us back. Mm. Next year, they got the Renault, and they're rubbish. <laughs> How long have Red Bull been saying they've got the best chassis of everybody, and it's just that pesky Renault holding them back? And now they got the Honda, and they're 
off the pace and now they're saying it's got a very narrow setup window so perhaps they didn't have the best chassis all along and as you said john perhaps they just piled on buckets of uh, downforce and their drag ratio was poor but they could still win at the slowest circuits now can i add, can i add in another little bullet point because uh, i'm not going to call them headlines your headline is my bullet point i like something more substantial oh, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd have a big argument about a powerpoint wouldn't we oh well, absolutely uh, you call them decks now love decks I know. Um, and uh, I, I said about Vettel's head going now mm-hmm. quite clearly the master of psychological warfare in the pit lane because we've seen him destroy very very good drivers is Lewis Hamilton and he's already working on Vettel through Leclerc oh you were dead unlucky mate oh look he's been brilliant. He was praising him in the post-race interviews. He and said post-qualifying. How, and post-qualifying, absolutely. And Vettel, Vettel's head's going to go, mate. I'm telling you, his head is going to go. I thought Hamilton played sure, an surely absolute Surely that race uh, was, in fact, that whole weekend was an example of uh, Vettel's head's already gone. Because first of all, uh, he gets Ferrari to tell Leclerc to mess up the start so that uh, he, he can uh, overtake him mm. without looking like he's overtaking him. Yeah. Uh, and then he spins on his own for no reason. Having been overtaken by Leclerc who ignored team orders. That's going to have repercussions, that. Well, it did because they blew up his engine, didn't they? Well, and it remotely. And and if I think I think there's a big red button on the steering wheel of of. Vettel isn't there, but he wasn't there to take up the take up the cudgels. Um, I, I was talking to a racing driver at the weekend when we were down in Mugello, so that narrows it down to about you know 150. So. Yeah, um, so I'm not telling tales out of scale. I'm not going to say who it was, who absolutely agrees with me and says Vettel, this is his last season. If he doesn't win the championship this year, and if he doesn't come. Con- absolutely comprehensively outperform Leclerc. He's off. He won't do it anymore. He's going to be gone. He's going to be a broken man and we'll all have to reassess what his what his uh, legacy might actually be. Well, I don't think we need to reassess it. We all know what it is. If he's got a good car and he can win with the good car or the best car, then he will probably win. Bastian Vettel is a better driver than Mark Webber and that's it. Only sometimes when he's got a better car. Well, uh, that's that's what that's his legacy. But he did have a damn fine car built to his specification, and Correct. he did ma- and he maximised the opportunity when people kept giving up. But you know, he won. Yeah, he was beaten by Ricard in the first year when he was um, at Red Bull uh, together, and then he jumped ship to to Ferrari. He's you know loused up the last two seasons for them. So well, with with their help. But you know, it, things can turn around. Perhaps perhaps a miracle can happen. He's not slow. There's no problem with his pace. He's a good qualifier. There's no issue with any of that stuff. It's, it is that most important few inches behind the eyes, isn't it? It really counts. Yes. Anything else, Tim, that you want to go to? Yes, oh, because uh, even if we move away from the race, which we shouldn't really because there's so much more to talk about, uh, we do have to talk about uh, what's been happening in uh, Bahrain since the test. Yes. Uh, sorry, since the race, because yep. there's been some testing. Uh, now, it was raining in Bahrain to start with. <laughs> of course the it day was. it was dry. The um, rain in Bahrain fo- falls mainly on Lazile. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it didn't rain today, though. Uh, we've uh, seen lots of drivers testing, including one who was in two different cars. That's right. It was Mr. 
Mick Schumacher, who did a few laps in the Ferrari yesterday and some more laps in the Alfa Romeo today. Oh, good for him. Which means uh, overall in the testing, he is both sixth and seventh. He was second best Ferrari, though. Yes, to Fettel. Yeah, but they're it's testing to do better than that. Isn't he? he was, one the, one he was the, the best Alfa Romeo. Was it? One of the things you need to think about is the irony of the fact that the fastest time of the test was done by Mr. G. Russell, mm-hmm. uh, though he wasn't driving. He was the, also the slowest uh, time of the test, though, Nick. Yes, because he wasn't driving the team awful Williams for that one. Uh, he got a go in the Mercedes. So he actually, had, he actually ran out in the... In the in, it, must be, must be, it must be galling uh, to get out that poor piece of equipment and then get in the Mercedes and go, oh, oh this, this is, is what, what they feel like. like. <laughs> And then go fast. It yes, does okay. show exactly what the difference is between those cars because uh, Russell in the Mercedes did a lap time of 129.029 yeah. and in the Williams did a lap time of 133.682. <laughs> now, to I'd be fair, in the Mercedes, awesome. he was on the soft tyre and in the Williams, he was on the hard tyre. That's a second and a half, maybe two seconds. There, yeah, the car's four seconds off. Three and a half, four seconds. We can, we can also compare tyres. Uh, we can also compare the Ferrari and Alfa Romeo because uh, Mick Schumacher drove yep. both of those. And in the Ferrari, he did a one twenty nine point nine seven six on the soft tyre. Is that one twenty nine point nine seven six? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope you're looking at uh, page seven of your programme here. Yep. Uh, and uh, in the Alfa Romeo, also on the soft tyre, he did a 129.998. That's 129.998. So the Alfa Romeo is two hundredths of a second slower than the Ferrari. They'll be working hard to get rid of that then. Uh, just depending on, on what yeah, fuel loads and everything else. But, you know, uh, obviously, obviously Fernando Alonso was out there again. Didn't get much um, publicity. Um, it's, it's amazing how quickly you are yesterday's man in F1. Um <laughs> And yeah, I mean, it was. Was he in the car? Yeah, he was driving the Predator test, and the um, he did he did say that the new McLaren was was head and shoulders better than the old one. But given the fact that Norris and Sainz both made Q three and Norris came sixth, that was relatively obvious that it's a much better car. Hmm. Few uh, young drivers uh, taking part in this uh, test because it is ostensibly supposed to be a young driver test for people uh, like Vettel and Alonso. We had uh, Dan Tictum in the Red Bull. He was the fastest of the uh, Red Bulls by... Ver- oh, no, he wasn't. Verstappen was the fastest of the Red Bulls. He was the slower of the two Red Bulls. <laughs> right. He did, 100, he did 135 laps. That's two and a bit races. Yes, but the fastest one was a 130.8. Yeah, you, um, don't know what, you don't know what the programme was. You've got to be very careful with all of this. And he was on the medium tyre. Yeah. So they were uh, doing medium tyre testing. Yeah. They had a lot. They had a lot of work to do because their car is, as we said, not easy to set up. So I'm sure they were going from one one extreme to the other and and, and trying to work out where the window was. So uh, I'm sure they that they were probably know exactly that was good or bad or, or indifferent. Roman Grosjean was also on the medium tire. He did a one thirty point nine. The other Haas was driven by Pietro Fittipaldi, who was on the hard, who did a one thirty one point two. Jack Aitken uh, tested for Renault. And was the fastest of the Renaults. Okay. Faster than Danny. Dan, Dan, Danny Rick. And Who the uh, Australian press, by the way, are absolutely mullering for having two DNFs. Um, Renault's the worst thing in the world. He's ruined his career, etc. Moving well, on. Who knows? Mm. Did the Red Bull really flatter him? 
No, he's a good driver. He's, I don't think. I think you know. He's it's. Where did he, he qualify? Was on a par with Verstappen. Uh, he was about. I can't remember what was this weekend. Was it was eleventh, I think. Um, uh, and the Renault's got problems again, but it's it's you know it. it I don't think the engine's a problem because because the um, McLaren's doing all right. Uh, the final young driver to take part was uh, Queen Latifah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> really? Fresh from his victory, old Nicholas. Nicholas Latifi. Nicholas Latifi. Nicolas Very Latifi. Yes. The French Very Canadian. bad news for um, uh, Robert Kubica, that is. Yes, agreed. Latifi, who I thought was a bit of a joke with a rich dad, is turning out to be quite good with a rich dad. And uh, More than a second of that, that faster Russell, on a harder tyre. Yeah. Given the fact that Russell's got um, a two-year contract and some free cash or free mm. engine or something from Mercedes, um, you kind of think that Robert's got, gonna, unless Robert can re-pull something out of the bag, is, this is going to be his one year in a terrible car. Um, we'll if, talk about Formula 2 later in the show. Okay, we'll get Nick back uh, for some motorcycle news in a wee while. At Specutainment, you're listening to Midweek Motorsports, Series 14, Episode 13. Hello to Monty Elysium, tuned in from the queue. Powering says, uh, looking forward to another two hours with you guys, hour and a half. Now, planning for Le Mans going well. Invitations going out for the big to get-together on Thursday. Chris Humphrey's got his FM scanner and battery pack on charge, uh, ready uh, to go for marshalling at rounds one, two and three of the British Touring Car Championship this weekend. Uh, Paul Dunk is grabbing the first hour before going to footy. Uh, Rob Chalmers listening live from his sickbed as he sniffles his way through man flu. And Emma Crawley uh, is listening for the first time in ages. Uh, well, this weekend, quite a lot of marshals of our marshals friends uh, will be out and about. I've got a bit of news about that for next week uh, as well. But uh, that's because the British UK scene is getting underway in uh, in earnest, I would say, uh, this weekend. And among the championships that are kicking off will be Radical, which is up at Donington Park for the Radical Challenge. And Will Brown, who is the marketing and events manager from Radical Cars, joins us now. Hello, Will. Are you looking forward to the season? Yeah, John, absolutely. Um, you know, here we are at the start of, a, of another jam-packed season for, for radical competitors right across the world. But um, no, it's looking like it's going to be another strong season here in the UK for, for drivers in our evergreen SR3 championship. You guys shell out racing cars at a rate that most small uh, premium manufacturers would be delighted to have. Um, but before we get into the nuts and bolts of the championship this year, uh, just give us an idea of how often a racing car is going out the doors there. So we build about 150 racing cars a, a year from our from our Cambridgeshire factory, and they go to drivers and teams right across the world. So I mean, if you know, give you an idea in the scale of the activity that we've got going on this year, um, there's somewhere in excess of 70 radical single mate races participating uh, in in championships all across the world in in 2019. So that's not just the UK; that's a, a Pan American series. Um, we've got two championships in Canada. There's one in Australia. Um, we've got a series that's commencing in Poland. There's two in the Far East. So it's kind of there isn't really a, a continent, with the exception maybe of Antarctica, around the world where there aren't people racing radicals day in, day out. So that must mean then that you have had to build up a tremendous infrastructure to, to support all those different series around the world. Yeah, and, and it's something we kind of, we're, really now, we're, we're not so much a, 
a racing car manufacturer as, as part-time tour operator, event organizer, you know, <laughs> race concierge. That's as, as much a, a part of the business. And I mean, it's part of, I think, of, of what has made kind of what we do such a success because I think these days it's so, you know, there's so much competition out there in the market. There's so many options and mm. sports car racing is as popular as it's ever been. But people are looking for something extra you know a lot of a lot of the drivers that come to us they're they're fairly affluent people but they're also very time poor mm. so you need to make sure that uh, if you're paying for your own racing you want to get the most track time you want to get the best experience out of what you're doing inevitably if you if you're paying it for, for it yourself so it's all about all that background support in terms of giving people confidence and part of that is in making a product that is ridiculously easy to drive quickly but also all that support from uh, technical support data support everything else that you kind of need that normally you know can often inhibit people from competing I, I know that there are still people who buy a radical to go and enjoy as a as a track day car but by far the great majority of them end up racing somewhere it all comes back to this if, if you make the product superbly easy to drive that's where the performance comes from you know that we're all about if you make the car so ridiculously easy to drive and very approachable that it gives you a huge amount of feedback in in the way that it handles ultimately that inspires confidence and that's what encourages people to push on and that's why people find that they can with with relatively limited seat time they don't have to go and do a huge amount of testing to get on those lap times and i mean don't be fooled by the lap time we're talking you know this is a car certainly i mean even our entry-level sr1 product will lap any circuit in a kind of GT4 rivaling pace. The SR3s certainly will be you know, best anything that's on a, on a Toka package. So, you know, it's a supremely quick car, but it's something that it, if, you're, if you don't have huge amounts of time to go testing and to pour through the data, you can still get on it straight away. Still, in relative terms, well, a, 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 a young company founded back in 1997 by Phil Abbott and Mick Hyde, you guys hit... Right from the start, you found your niche in the market. Yes, I know that you've been all the way up to uh, Le Mans with, uh, the, with the Rule Centre racing SR9. I remember that very well in 2006, uh, the 24 hours of Le Mans. But you guys have, have had such a loyal customer base really right from the very start. And, and I think part of the company's success as well is that we've always had an eye on the export market. So um, the United States has always been very good to us. We've, we've had a very big uh, and successful following in, in America for a long time, right from sort of SCCA level you know, through to our, our Europe, uh, USA Masters Championship, which runs you know, alongside Pirelli World Challenge. We've got a round sport in IndyCar this year as well at Road America. So, you know, it, it's we've always focused, and indeed, 70% of what we what we produce goes to export. And I think that's probably why we've been able to weather the storm better than most. Certainly, with the you know the challenging economic conditions that we've had in the last five years. With your single make series, you are somewhat insulated from the slings and arrows of outrageous motorsport fortune. Prototype racing uh, is something that is dear to your heart. It's what your cars look like as well. So quite a lot of your customers will say, oh, yeah, that looks like the sort of thing that runs at Le Mans or in the European Le Mans series. I mean, at the moment, we're at a bit of a crossroads there. Do you guys keep an eye on that to see if there's opportunities for the future or are you quite happy where you are? Um, we're, we're pretty happy where we are. I think, you know, you, particularly if you look at the way that the, the emerging markets, you, know, you move away from kind of the established motorsport arena of, of Northern Europe, you know, and look at the opportunities that we've got new, new emerging markets like South Korea, 
Uh, Poland, as I mentioned, we've just placed a race school fleet into uh, into Israel and wanting to Q8. Wow. These are markets where there's not a great heritage of, of sports car and endurance racing, but there's definitely an appetite for it. Um, but at the same time, you've got to pitch the product at a level that's appropriate to the to the knowledge base that's maybe based in these territories. Mm. So that's that's where we're kind of focused on at the moment. I, mean, I think we've got a, a really strong and well-developed range in, in the SR3, which has been around now since 2001, uh, the SR8, which again has, has been around for over a decade. Um, these are these are products that are well established. Um, for us, we found quite a nice sort of corner of the market for producing something that's a great stepping stone into GT3 racing, LMP3, and beyond. Provides you all the skills you need, and you know, I've, particularly with our SL1 entry level product, which mm. we brought and in. That, and that's a complete novice. That's for complete novices. You could you could actually do your first ever motor race. You can have the cross on the back of the car there, and and that's what it's there for. We we meet yeah, and every year we meet hundreds of people at circuits who are obviously they're at track days because they're interested in performance driving. And when you talk to these people and ask them why they never go racing, they've all got the desire to do it, but there's inevitably something that's holding them back. Mm-hmm. And quite often that's a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. Maybe they don't know anybody uh, that can help them get into motorsport, and they're worried about you know failing. So. That package is all about giving people the skills they need to get them confident and safe and lapping confidently in the car. So that regardless of what else they go on to do, we hope that they stay with us up through the ladder. But even if they go on to race at, at P3, P2 level, GTs, whatever, that when they get there, they're going to be as well equipped as they possibly can be. So that we, you know, I'd love to think 10, 15 years down the line, if you're seeing a driver racing at the top flight of, of you know, Le Mans or wherever, that it'll be no surprise that they're so competitive because they started out in SR1. Yeah. SR3 is is your stock in trade, if you will. That's the the big uh, mo- model for you around the world. And the SR3 challenge in the UK starts this weekend at Donington Park with, with a bit of a new look and one or two new features for the year. It, it, it's been insanely uh, successful down through the years. Um, I think, are you on the second generation or the third generation of that car now? I mean, you could argue almost fourth, really. I mean, right. the RSX we introduced back in, in 2014. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've for a long time have had a, a what we call a non-Juro format championship in the UK, a mixture of, uh, of, of long and short racing. And we've made a few tweaks for this year. We've just extended the, uh, the endurance races across the weekend slightly. So that race weekend now features two 50-minute and one 20-minute race um, and, and again, we attract a mixture of, of solo drivers that will race on their own, and you can also share a car as well. And I'm led to believe you're, you're looking towards doing some streaming on this. I know there's already TV coverage, but how important is that? That's, I know that's come from your client base as well, talking to the people. How important is it that people can watch or listen away from the track? Again, this comes down to people maybe being time poor of a weekend. Yeah, it, it's it's vitally important. You know, particularly if you think this is this is ultimately as independent teams, this is privateers that are looking to to raise their profile with their own sponsors. So no, I think it is important. We're in a great position now with with modern social media, where it's it's very easy to set these things up and and broadcast to to mass audience in a in a relatively straightforward way. A race centre with centralised catering this year as well, which again just underlines that you're in a proper championship the manufacturer is involved uh, it just gives that polished look in the paddock it comes it comes back to you've got to consider the whole package of the championship yeah. 
not just the racing. You know, most of most of the time you spend at the race weekend will not be in the car. So when you're spending the amount of money that you inevitably are to do any form of motorsport and you're that involved in it, whether it's through fitness or time or whatever, you need to look at the whole package. So the hospitality is a really important part of that. You need to ensure that your communication to the drivers is of the highest order. It's it's not just about the car. There's so much more to it, and and all of that is is what can give you kind of a competitive edge in in what is a is a busy championship market. How many will we see at Donington this weekend? Um, we're on target for 20 cars, which is a is a great start to the season. We've got some new drivers in the field as as well as some old faces. So Dominic Jackson, who was who was last year's championship uh, victor, he's back for another another go this year. But I think he's going to have some stiff competition. Jerome de Sadelier, for example, mm. who's um, that's who good de Sadelier's younger Absolutely. brother, isn't it? Yeah, yeah we've yeah, seen him in a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's right. And he's dovetailing his his efforts in the challenge this year. So a full season in the Radical Challenge. He's also doing some VLN and uh, and I believe some P3 um, racing this year as well. So, yeah, he's he's a he's going to be a real one to watch. Yeah, there's there's a huge amount of talent. We've got some new teams in the grid. Heart GT that have come across from the the Ginetta Super Cup there, fielding Jack Constable. It's, it's going to be it's going to be tight at the top. And the the works team are um, are being very brave this weekend because you very kindly asked me to have a run out what am i going to expect no i think i think you're going to have a great time i mean the, the great thing is there's a real good fun paddock camaraderie and you know we've got we've got a great range of people i said some new drivers in the in the field this weekend um the likes of grant dalton who's come all the way from new zealand um ex america's cup uh sailor by the way so but no there's a there's a real great mix you know we've got drivers all the way from kind of 18 through to through to their their late 60s so there's a real broad demographic of drivers and uh, i think it'd be close you know the cars are, the cars are quick and the racing is always is always hard i think that surprises anybody that jumps into these you know particularly if you've if you've not necessarily got a huge amount of experience with with a, a downforce racing car mm. you know it is it is hot at the sharp end it's it's a hard i've always said it's a hard championship to win but we wouldn't have it any other way I can't wait. Thank you very much indeed for being brave and for the uh, the offer for me to come and drive. Uh, qualifying and a couple of races on Saturday and then the third race, which is another one of the 50-minute races on the Sunday. It's all up at Donington Park. Well, thanks for joining us. I'll see you at the weekend, I presume, and, and have a cracking season. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure, John. Absolutely look forward to uh, seeing your track guard. Right, let's move to two-wheeled action now. Uh, Nick Damon, our regular MotoGP uh correspondent is with us for this hello hello still back or well, you know hello <laughs> yeah that was smooth it nick excellent thank you very much Jack. yes uh, and he is joined and um, we haven't heard this voice for a wee while far too long actually by declan brennan hi dex hello everyone hello nick hello john hello listener motor gp has been interesting but perhaps perhaps interesting not in the way that people might have thought we got the i was going to say we got the result we deserve but we got the, the <laughs> results that we expected in qatar with with purely because of the of the performance capabilities of, of the ducati uh, and arguably because of the the appendage that gigi delina has uh has now created and installed on uh on the the factory bikes and the uh Pramac bikes but but normal service was resumed uh effectively and, and probably a preview of the rest of the season was what we got in Argentina, which was Mark Marquez winning 
with his most dominant win in the dry in his career, which is magnificently ominous for the rest of uh, the season and for the rest of the MotoGP paddock, I would suspect, Nick. Uh, and that that's the point, Nick. Everybody was jumping up and down early on about the aero appendages. Uh, however, that's now been ruled legal. They will get it for the rest of the year. And Ducani have, have form, haven't they, for being aerodynamically cute? Well, yeah, I mean, I think just going back to the result, I thought quite an interesting point was, I think it was Andrea De Vizioso. Um, his statement was, well, actually, if Mark hadn't had lots of problems last year, he'd have won by more last year. Mm. So going like, things aren't as bad as they seem. He's only <laughs> just as dominant last year when he won the championship really easily. Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't think anybody was surprised that Mark won in, in uh, Argentina. You know, the, the Honda has always gone very well at that circuit at the time they've been there. So the fact was, he, obviously, he... he is looking in great form. He's back to full fitness. Uh, the bike um, also gained a couple of aero bits where they had two goes. And they said, right, okay, if you're going to improve Ducati's aero, we're going to try a bit. And they went, no, that's too radical. And they just chiseled a bit off it and they said, that's fine. And they got an aero fairing as well. But, you know, the, the, the big battle on aero, and I'm sure Dex has got a better memory, it was about three seasons ago when the bike started getting the front end that kind of more resembled a mod, a mod saloon than anything else. They came chunkily out and they were... The reason for it, obviously, is, is to get the front end on the ground rather than to provide traditional you know, suction down force. But a lot of that was banned. Obviously, once again, they haven't written the rules tightly enough in MotoGP and now they're all getting around them. So they'll have to write another set of rules saying, no, you can just have a fairing what looks like a five-year-old withdrawal. It's a philosophical change uh, from Gigi Delina, uh, because basically, as Nick said, during that period when electronics got standardized, he sat away in, in his lab uh, like Flint Lockwood in Cloudy with a chance of meatballs and, uh, and, and decided that the way forward was aero, mm. the, the, the way to create the point of difference was aero. Yes. And, and they've, led the, they've been the, excuse the pun, the, the leading edge on all of this has been, has been Gigi Delina and his aero ideas. The genius of him, though, and this is where I feel we've got, we're in the, in the era of the Gordon Murray of, of two wheels now, because what he did was absolute genius. A Priya in February had basically the same device banned by uh, the FIM. Mm-hmm. So what does Gigi do? He, uh, first of all, he, he reads creates, the regulations for a start off yes. to see what's allowed. Then he creates plausible deniability by signing Danilo Petrucci, who's heavy, who is heavy and needs, literally needs the advantage of, of a cooler tire because his tire is overheat. So he signs him. Then in Qatar, runs the, the, the tire cooling, in inverted commas, on both his bike and Jack Miller's bike in practice. Doesn't run it on, on Divisiosos. So again, they have the plausible deniability that it is running as a coolant as opposed to an aerodynamic device. And the aerodynamic benefit is only uh, effectively a law of unintended consequences. It reminds me of, of the fan car. The fan car yes. was clearly an aerodynamic device. But they built in enough plausible deniability to say that it was for cooling. Yep. And people forget the fan car wasn't banned, just like this device hasn't been banned. The fan car... Uh, was withdrawn by Bernie because he had bigger political fish to fry yeah. and didn't want to get into a, fight, a long-term fight over that. And this is the same. The, I think the reason Pedrucci is in the, the team for 2020 is because it gave them an inbuilt excuse to run. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. I think Delina is that much of a genius that he thought that so far I, ahead. So, so there was a management meeting that said, look, I've got this idea, but we need a big lad to make it work. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so what you're saying is that when they were working out um, which which ride to sign for the following season, they were literally weighing up their options. But I'm abs- I, I am absolutely serious about this. I think that is he is he is so smart and and is so ahead of the of the game in terms of that. That is absolutely like it's it is not beyond the bounds of possibility because it has it has absolutely given them the excuse to run it and they have it is now legal to much to a Priya's absolute chagrin and it's not going to be changed through the season as well which I'm really pleased to hear about if it's legal at the start of the season it's legal right back to regulations for next year what what we didn't see though was Dovi Andrea Dovizioso at the weekend in Argentina uh, in the Motul Grand Prix driving away indeed only came in third behind Valentino Rossi on the Yamaha. Now, if we're going to talk about Aero, we've got to make the point there that Valle's already used his evolution on the bike this year because he did it before the start of the first race. So, there, I mean, clearly what that underlines, Nick, what Dex is saying about how crucial the Aero is right now. I think it's because they... With it, we have this thing called, we've had very stable regulations. Yeah, the electronics was the biggest change a couple of years ago. And if you start looking for marginal gains, and the marginal gains are in many ways easiest to be had in aerodynamics because the aerodynamics has been stripped back and, non, and, and not being exploited. I mean, I think the uh, Honda went out and spent a lot of time over the winter concentrating on increasing their straight line speed, which the way you, there's two ways you increase straight line speed. One, obviously, is a bit more horsepower, but that's harder and harder to come by. But the second one is make the thing slippery through the air. They've so, done something else as well, Nick. They've, they have managed to redesign the triple clamp in a way that's given them more feel on the front end, hmm. which has also helped alleviate the issues they had where they had to run the hard tire last year. Yes. They had to run the hard tire, and running the hard tire on the front end was their biggest problem because the hard tire doesn't give you warning when it goes off. So you're basically on a knife edge on the hard tire. Granted, they ran the hard tire in Argentina, but in Qatar he was able to run the medium on the front and it has definitely changed the feel of the bike. And it's the same, that improvement, you're seeing it with, with Cal Crutchlow. We'll get to him in a minute, but Crutchlow was the fa- second fastest bike in Argentina and would have finished second in that race. Yes, but Honda. how odd is it, that as, as you and Nick have both mentioned, that Honda are quickest in a straight line, both in Qatar and in Argentina decks. That, that isn't what we've come to expect down the years. It's because the front end, I think a lot of it is to do with the front end is giving Marquez particularly more confidence on corner entry. Mm. And, and it's, it, he's carrying more speed out of corners. And that, I think, is alleviating. And he's also, that means he's, he's arguably he's breaking a little later. So it means he's, he's able and he's more confident to absolutely be running absolutely flat right. uh, on the straights. And I think that's what's happened. So we have this situation now where, God, if you're Andrea Divisioso, you're now somewhere in a dark room bashing your head off a wall <laughs> with a helmet on because the only areas of advantage for the Ducati are now being eroded by Honda. At the top of the standings, we have Mark Marquez. Uh, that is not exactly a headline, although bizarrely, it might well be after two events this year, given what we saw at the first event and how everybody's hair was on fire about how much advantage the Ducati had. It's only a four-point gap, though, Nick, back to Dovi in second. Then there's 10 points to Valentino Rossi on the Yamaha. The Yamaha still does not look a pleasant bike to ride. No, and and the continuing travails of Maverick Vinales and kind of tells you what it's all about. I mean, it's it's apparently quite a good bike over one lap for him, and obviously you have to have the 
the master of racecraft um, to get, get the thing anywhere near towards in, in Rossi. In Rossi, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously far poorer of an overall package than either Ducati or the Yamaha. And if you look at the results, it's actually a poorer race package in the Suzuki as well. Mm. So that doesn't really bear particularly good reading for um, Lynn Jarvis and the rest of the uh, Yamaha management. I really feel that the, the different messages that were coming out of Yamaha in the preseason, at the end of season test, into the into the preseason test, if you know what I mean. When we had a, they had the chance to decide what they wanted to do, mm. and we had very strange situation where Maverick Vinales, after the tests in in Spain, said, "Yeah, this is great. We're making progress. This is the bike I want." And 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 literally on the other side of the of the hauler, Valentino Rossi saying, "We are so far off. We have so much work to do. This is." is nowhere near where we need to be. And that was very surprising. And what we ended up with clearly is a bike that is working for one of them. Working less badly. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but definitely... Don't forget that, 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 that Rossi was nowhere in Qatar. Qualified, didn't even get out of qualifying one in Qatar. Just the, the thing about Rossi is, you know, and, and you know, no one's going to deny that Marquez is, is head and shoulders above everyone else. Rossi is comfortably the best rider of a race. And he will get... And if you sit down, if you've got a bike that can come third, Rossi will come third. That's his maximum you can get. Vinales, he's ninth, 11th. He just fades away. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Vignales, the bike star is gone. I mean, I think, I think the, Vinales, I think, unfortunately, it's a two-year contract, but I think what Yamaha need to do is find someone else. because Fabio Quattaro, the yeah, Frenchman, or is... Or Morbidelli or... Mor- well, I think Morbidelli or Quattararo, or, or, you're right, are, are next on that list. Uh, if, and Vinales is absolutely in a position where he, he has to change things very quickly. John, you're absolutely correct. The, the, one of the Patronus Yamaha riders, because they're on the same bikes. Those bikes correct. are the same spec. Uh, and then we have... Uh, Quattararo could have, could have won in the Middle East. He could have won in the Middle East. He certainly looked like on for a podium. All right. He was, you know, he was, yeah, he was sensational. Yeah. Um, Alex Rins is in fourth position. Let's talk quickly about Suzuki. Suzuki have produced a bike that does seem to stop and turn. Uh, and Rins, all right, he's a, another, what, six, seven points behind Rossi. But we are talking about Suzuki, uh, and we are seeing Suzuki, at least for some part of the weekend, being at the sharper end of the timing sheets, Dex. Yeah, but, but I, think, I think the issue is uh, that they now have is, and this is kind of like the, with Vinal, is, is that I think Rince is of, 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 a, of a quality. He's a, he's a high-quality rider, but I'm, I'm almost at the stage where he's getting the most out of that bike and they need somebody. They almost need somebody from, from uh, the uh, generational talent club that we talk about to, to, uh, <laughs> to get on one of those bikes and see what it can do because it's very good on tires. It's short on top speed. So we, 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 he has that. It's definitely down on power, but it is so nimble and so good on its tires that he's able to, and he's managing well, but it's hard to know exactly where that whole package is without necessarily us having like Juan Mir is a rookie so we can't put any too much pressure no, no, on, no. on him and he's impressing everybody mm. but I think it feels like that bike needs a, a one of the top riders on it to, to absolutely know uh, and ironically maybe we'll end up with Vanalia's back there next year yeah. but I, I just, I just I want to go back to something that, that, that Dex said that you know Suzuki needed one of the generational talents I'm of the opinion now that in the space of two years, two or three years, we've gone around, and now I don't think we have a particularly good field. And reason being, Lorenzo's too hurt to drive properly. Uh, Pedroza's retired. 
you know, you've got Valentino Rossi. He's 40. I'm sorry, he's marvellous, but he's 40. <laughs> Delicioso was always top. Of, was always going for a Europa League place, not the not the Champions League. So you've got Marquez now. This is not. This is not seven eight years ago. We had when we had Lorenzo, we had Stoner, we had Rossi and Pedroza before he fell off 130 times. We have one generation. We have one generational talent who's still in his own generation. The second generational talent who's now 40, and the rest have fallen off. Villanova is nothing, mm. and Zarco is nothing as well. I want a quick word about KTM. Paulus Bargaro is the best of their riders. Miguel Oliveira um, a little bit further down. Um, have they flattered to deceive again? Is this another two-year project, Nick, for, for KTM? What, what do they need to get the shot in the arm that they require? I don't know. They've got, they've got a decent, well, a theoretical decent rider, Johan Zarco. He's struggling appallingly. They've, they've, you know, they've, they've just really not pushed on. Um, they've had the various you know, waivers and help you get from being not being on the top teams but I've, I've said it before i believe I, I i still believe in zarko i think zarko unfortunately has uh, he, he was forced into this he there was no other place for him to go and ktm had so much money and they are spending a lot of money I, they have made gains uh guys they have absolutely made gains the problem is so is everybody else quick point from dex i think about cal crutchlow sixth position uh, he has had the pace. Uh, he is the next best Honda to Mark Mar- Marquez. Again, that's hardly a headline that's going to send everybody clicking on it. Sixth position in the championship. Uh, rate me Cal Crutchlow over the first couple of races, Dex. Oh, he, he's undoubtedly the, the number two. He, he's, the, he's the second Honda and he's the second rider. His performance after the drive-through, he finished 31 and a half seconds behind Marquez. The drive-through cost him 30 probably he was he was he was absolutely robbed completely of he'd be second in the championship now he'd he'd have had a third and a second place and i think he's riding at the top of his game considering he's coming back from those chronic injuries from philip island he was absolutely totally hosed by by rules that are too rigid how marginal was was that call for the 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 bike looked to be moving when i saw the side on shot from front on i couldn't say it if i'm honest um but the side on shot it looked like he was moving I, uh, John, I, I'm not going to argue. I don't think anybody argued that it was a jump start. It was so fractional, though. And then I think it's really about whether the punishment fits the crime. And it so, what do, do, do you put them through the penalty loop instead? The penalty loop exists now, but it's not used for jump starts. There's degrees of a jump start, isn't there? About how much advantage you can get. But you, it would seem to me that you're being penalised more for a tiny little jump start or a dragging clutch, Nick, than you are from banging into somebody and knocking them off. Well, uh, since when does uh, the punishment always have a, a, an equal effect from the result? I mean, I think it, it, it was incredibly marginal. Yeah, he jumped the start. And if you've got an option for a three-second loop, well, stick him through the three-second loop. Ah, and he's tougher. And certainly the first five or six laps, and, and, and certainly in MotoGP, where he probably means you lose five positions, that's that's enough. It wasn't like he actually get benefited much from his jump start. I think he still came around the first corner in six. He didn't get anywhere because of it. No. Um, I, I, I honestly believe Freddie Spencer was in a bind where he had to he had to come down hard be- and, and and maybe I'm being cynical here but Freddie's a Honda guy I think F- Freddie will always be historically a Honda guy I think he had to he had to come down on 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 a, on a Honda rider I think he could he couldn't say no it's fine I think there would have been uproar if that, if that was the case, he had to punish him. I want, I want I to talk it's... very quickly about Moto2. We haven't got time to do uh, a big insight into Moto2 and, and Moto3. For, first of all, a general point, Dex, uh, is the, the new Triumph engine 
with a very different characteristic in terms of how it delivers its power and particularly its torque, has changed the look and the feel of Mortal 2 altogether. Oh, without question. Without question. It's, it's, as a spectacle, it is so far anyway in the, in the, in the short time we, we've had uh, the racing with the new engine. The racing is spectacular. Uh, interestingly, there are varying riding styles mm-hmm. uh, available to the riders. <laughs> uh, to, uh, with this bike, the torque means the, the racing generally has been superb. On saying that, Lorenzo Baldessari has been magnificent in his professionalism and his ability to just weigh up where he needs to be at the right time in a race. And he's won the first two races and looked magnificent doing so. But the racing has been fantastic. I, I honestly will say I am going to miss the CBR 600RR noise because it, it's one of the most True. glorious sounds in the True. world. But the new, the new bike sounds great. It's just different. Nick Baldessari, got to be the next guy to come up into the big show because he's already showing not just the pace on, on the bike, but, I mean, and by the way, all of the top six in the championship are Calix chassis. But, but he's also showing that ability, as Dex has said, to make good decisions. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that in, in the in the cut and thrust that is the the top level of Moto Two and Moto GP, it's it is this headspace that again does kind of um, define the differences. Especially when, of course, none of these guys have got much of a, a bike advantage. You really have to do it with your with you working with your engineer, thinking about it, and, and working out a race strategy of some sort. Next up, they move to the circuit of the Americas. Mortal GP. Only time to talk about that. The big long back straight. It would strike me immediately as a Honda track for that alone. Mark has won every single year they've been there. Yeah. Two, they, they, they break into uh, the, the, the left-hander at the end of the back straight at 204 miles an hour. That's two, 204 miles per hour. Yes. Uh, sadly, uh, it's the race I'm going to again this year. Why is uh, that be, sadly? Well, because it's only sadly insofar as that I already know the result. Uh, <laughs> I've got an idea. How about this? Why don't they let everyone, apart from Marquez, use the IndyCar track design? I love that idea. Just oh, he, he's got to wear a massive helmet made of lead. He could wear a Frank Sidebottom paper mache helmet. And still win. <laughs> and still win it. They could put a sail from a catamaran on the back of the bike and he'd still win. <laughs> I'm tempted to say this is getting silly now, but I think I'm, that ship may have sailed. Uh, Declan Brennan... <laughs> And Nick Damon, thank you very much for talking about MotoGP. Would you like to hear some of my experimental avant-garde poetry? No? Okay then. It's Midweek Motorsport and still to come. Well, it's just after nine o'clock. Sorry, I was getting caught out by that one. Um, That all went a bit wrong at the end. They were being so sensible up until then. Uh, Just to prove we're live tonight... Uh, Arizona Diamondbacks at the uh, San Diego Padres, Who? top of the second. Uh, it's uh, one ball, one strike, two out. Joey Lucchese pitching to Nick Ahmed, who's just fouled, fouled ball at 91.3 mile an hour sinker. That's just for you, Carol. Still to come tonight, Scott Atherton will be talking DPI 2.0 and LMP 20, LMP 2020. Uh, straight after the show tonight, Super GT, our preview of the 2019 season with the editor of Super GT World, RJ O'Connell. And Shea Adam has the latest news about Long Beach IMSA, some BOP news and an entry list. But coming up next, something a bit special. Motorsport on RS1.
this music's about, don't you, John? Yes, I do. Uh, we're going to talk about a film. Okay. Do you want to do some tweets while we're waiting? Uh, okay, yes, can do. Sorry, wasn't expecting that. I've got people waiting on the phone. Uh, all right, uh, McDuff is saving the podcast for tomorrow's drive from Dorset to Base Simulators. Uh, Johnny Adam getting a lesson in fast there. You will love it. Alan Prosser said, ah, I was expecting the driver announcement uh, to be a random driver shouting, Announcement! Well, that's me at the weekend. Uh, okay, so that's good. Uh, uh, what else have we got here? Um, uh, Carol Brink says the Hurley book weighs like £10. That's appetite considering what we're going to do. Uh, Emma Crawley, congratulations for your uh, world record at the weekend. Uh, tell Tim Elvin won the Wales Rally GP in 2017. Uh, and Andy Blackmore, first time listening. I know live. that, but it was there to put Nick off. Right. Because okay. obviously both Elvin and. Uh, Charles have fathers who raced and all the other things fitted. Uh, and Andy Blackmore is listening for the first time in the few rides uh, for a few weeks. Andy, I know you're doing hard work for Lamborghini Super Trophy uh, as well as a number of other bits and pieces. Uh, Emma Crawley was working late last night to fill up the little tins which have arrived. Sarah Rigby uh, is listening in at home as well. In other news, Radio Le Mans team sneaks an announcement, says Dave Olcock, they've broken the laws of physics by squeezing a quart into a pint pot by fitting all of the content into a two-hour show. OK, uh, that's how it stands. Uh, coming up after the show tonight, don't forget that uh, big Super GT world. We're on live with RJ O'Connell. It's a different big interview this week as we have three people standing by to talk to us. Coming up, producer and director Derek Dodge. And we'll also hear from Patrick Dempsey. Uh, not about his motor racing necessarily here. He's got his Hollywood hat on because he's been instrumental too in bringing the documentary Hurley to the screen. But of course, it wouldn't be right to talk about this amazing piece of work without having Hurley Haywood to talk about it as well. Hurley, thanks for joining us. You and I have talked about your book before, and I suppose the first question has to be, why is now the right time to tell this part of your story that hasn't been generally known uh, throughout the last couple or three decades? What was it that made you decide that the book and subsequently the film was the right thing to do? The reason why I elected to do the, the film and the book was this young gentleman came to my office for an interview about racing, about the business of racing, and sort of halfway through the through the interview, he just stopped cold in his tracks and said, you know, I've been bullied my whole entire life. I'm gay. I wake up every morning. I think about suicide. And so I counseled him a little bit, and he left with, you know, a, a, a pretty good attitude. And then I never heard from him again. And about a year and a half later, it turns out his, his mother called me and she said, you know, I just want you to know that what you told my son saved his life. So that kind of set the seed in my in my brain that maybe if my voice is strong enough to save one kid, then I maybe can save two or 10 or 100. 
and so that was the reason why I decided to, to come out. We we live in, in a world where, you know, it's it's everybody bullies everybody. Um, and I think that's just unacceptable behavior. And first, Sean Cridlin did the book, and he sort of almost fell off his seat when uh, I really told him the sort of behind-the-scenes look at, at Hurley Haywood. And he said, God, this is going to be a great book. And we started off, and the book took took its own sort of life, and, and I think the end result is something really beautiful. At the same time, toward the end of the endeavor, Patrick Dempsey and Derek Dodge came to me, and Derek Dodge had gone to Patrick Dempsey and said, you know, I think Hurley's story would be really a powerful story to tell at this point of, of his life. And I agreed with that, and we started off to do the film. The film really took five years in the making. Five years in the making, but it has been made, and it is available now. As you said there, Hurley, Patrick Dempsey involved in bringing this project to fruition. Patrick joins us now, and, well, give me the, give me the elevator pitch, Patrick. Uh, what is Hurley in a, a sentence or two? Gosh, it's really enlightening, it's optimistic, and it's really a, a feel-good story at the end of the day. Hurley Harewood, an absolute icon. Why did you want to get involved in this project? You know, he wanted to tell his story. Um, I had a director who came up to me, Derek Dodge, who was working with me at Le Mans in 2014, and asked me if I would support and do the introductions, and I I, I agreed immediately. Uh, you know, if it was something that Hurley wanted to do, and it was a story that Derek wanted to tell, uh, I felt uh, you know it was uh, an important thing to get involved in, and to be able to make sure that we told the story in a way that not only the people within the racing community walked away with something new, but also people who don't understand the sport come back and look at it in a different way with new insight and new respect for the sport and the people in it. And that's the key, isn't it? Because this is a people story. This is not a technology story. It's not a motor car story. This is a story of an individual. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always a story in every individual. Everybody has their cross to bear. Everybody has their struggle to overcome in order to become a champion. And that's what makes them a champion is how they rise to that occasion and how do they meet that challenge. And this is something that is... Uh, I think, a truly remarkable story that needed to be told. And there was a desire for it to be told. Hurley was right behind this from the very start. I remember when Derek uh, was uh, first talking about crowdfunding this, in fact, to, to start. And we got behind it here on Midweek Motorsport. And the fact that Derek, uh, that Derek and Hurley wanted this, and particularly Hurley, wanted this story to be, to be told, that, that in some ways was a, was a game changer here. Oh, absolutely, because, you know, I've always respected Curly on the track and also as a, as a mentor and a coach to me, and certainly what he's done with Brumos as a team and, and that history we all know about. And this was something that was very important to him. And, you know, to get behind that, it's like he wanted to, to do in a way that would support him um, where he could be able to get his message out. Is this still going to be a surprise, going back as far as it does and in a sport that is the way it is, is it still going to be a surprise to some people who perhaps don't know the background? I think so. And I also think it's a surprise on how people receive the story. 
in a way where people are much more open than they initially would be going into it. If you, you know, I think that's been the takeaway is people come away with this with a much better appreciation for Hurley as the man and certainly a much greater appreciation of what his impact is on the sport. Um, so I, it's been, a, I think, very positive uh, in, a, in a surprise in a very good way. To get behind that story with, the let, let's be honest, the intimate details of, of what's gone on in Hurley's life could only have happened with Hurley being right behind this. But I, I think some people will still think, oh my. And that's got to be good, hasn't it? I think so. I think it's very good for the sport. And we're seeing a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out. I saw, you know, Adam Kroll has got a documentary coming out uh, that you're, I'm sure, well aware of. Yeah, of course you are. Uh, which is Uppity's story, you know, that he's been working on. And I think the sport is now revealing new stories, new insight with the people who make up the sport. And I think that's very positive, especially in the world that we, we live in right now. And is it important that we don't sensationalize this, uh, Patrick, in terms of Hurley's a guy. He was a race driver. We know him, our listeners know him as a race driver in the same way as we think of you as a, a race driver who does a bit of acting, to be quite honest. Um, and we say that with much, much right. love about you. We know Hurley as, as a racing driver uh, and the rest of it shouldn't really matter, should it? And we're not going to sensationalise that in this, in the telling of this story. No, and we don't sensationalize it. I think it's very balanced. I think it, it talks about it in a way that is very comfortable for him. Um, we understand why he's telling this particular aspect of his life at this time. Um, and I think the world that we live in, it's an important message to get out there. How, do, how does this fit in with you and your relationship with motor racing? Well, all through my racing career, certainly the endurance racing, and then I'll, I'll probably get back into some, you know, some sprint races. I think I'll do just to kind of keep my foot in it because I, I, I miss the competition, I miss the camaraderie, and also too, what's been fun is being, you know, in the sport for a number of years now. You get a different perspective, and you, you see the inner workings of the sport, and um, being able to tell those stories through the documentaries and certainly through Art of Racing in the Rain, which is finally now in the can. It will come out September 27th. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to share that sport with a broader audience, someone that may not be used to the sport or even aware of the sport or even care about the sport. And if they can walk away with a little bit more passion for it, a little bit greater understanding and respect for it, I think that's a huge win. And for me, the real turning point was when I focused 100% in a, uh, on the, the season of, in, in, the, uh, in the WEC that really taught me a life lesson in the sense if I want to do anything well, I need to focus on one thing at a time and do it fully. Um, and oddly enough, through my relationship with Porsche, and they've been incredibly supportive through this entire process without question. They were no hesitation whatsoever. They jumped in immediately to support this story. Uh, and it's a real testament to what they are as a company, what the culture is in that company, and why people, you know, bring it brings out the best in every individual who works there, who competes there, who drives for them. Um, and, and that's what you want to have in your life. And that's what you want to have uh, um, a sense of balance, to get back to the, your original question, is, is really finding the balance, which is like the setup of the car, right? You want to have the right balance in the car to be able to get through the corners. And that's a real great metaphor for life in many ways. Ultimately, is it too simplistic to say it comes down to people's passions? It comes down to the fact that people don't want to live 
a life that's a straight line. They're prepared to accept the sine wave of big highs and big lows, which, again, is a metaphor for life, and motor racing is absolutely that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you get that in, in there's a wonderful documentary that's on Netflix right now, F1, which you get into last season. Uh, and you see uh, the great insight of that world right now is the highs and the lows where you're one week you're on top and the next you're at the bottom. I, I've never experienced higher highs and lower lows in motorsport. It is a brutal sport. You know, it really is. Uh, on so many, just, yes, there's the physical aspect. There's also the emotional and spiritual side of it. It's, it, it's either, it, it brings you up or brings you down. And, and life is like that. Life mm. throws you big challenges uh, on a weekly basis. And I think uh, what you learn through sport and, and certainly motorsport for me is a life lesson in so many ways. Documentary filmmaking is on a real upswing. It's having a, a renaissance at the moment and tackling some very difficult issues in a, a wider array of subjects than ever before. Patrick, why do you think that is? I think you learn something. I think that's what I, I really love documentaries. My kids always give me a hard time about it because I'm always punching one documentary after another. But for me, it's a way to learn. You know, it's about a subject. If I'm interested in a specific subject or I'm interested in a specific person, you know, you're you're learning something. Uh, and that, I think, is what is the appeal, certainly, for me. And I think there's work to be done on how we present documentaries. There's certainly a formula. I think one of the, the great all-time documentaries in motorsport was the Senate documentary yeah. that was done. And they played with how they shot that. You never saw a talking head. You saw the voices. You saw the images. And you, and you had emotion. And I think that's why Hurley is so, it's been doing so well is because it has a beautiful emotion to it. Mm. It has a feeling to it. There's a poignancy in it, and I think that's what you want to have in a documentary. You want to feel that. There's the drama, um, and there's a, there's a journey that you go on, and there's an education in that process. Does it still have to be entertaining? Uh, does it still have to be, you mentioned the drama, but presumably you can't overplay that drama. It still has to have a feeling of reality there. Yeah, and that, that's the difference between a reality show, right? Like a reality show, they, they will force you to create conflict that's not necessarily there. In a documentary, if you're retelling the story, it's like watching a race, right? There's enough drama. You don't have to script any drama. It's going to come out. It's going to happen. Whether you like it or not, it's suddenly going to be there. And I think that's what's fascinating about a documentary. You're not, contr- you're not creating something. It's there. You're witnessing it. You're telling the story. Uh, there's a difference. And I think there's reality television. You know, to me, I, I have a lot of conflicted feelings about it. I think it's some of the behavior that is on there is now is socially acceptable to be acting inappropriately because that's how they're pushing the people in front of the camera in order to create conflict, but it's not real. It's manufactured, and I think that in itself is, is a real problem. So what we're talking about there, Patrick, is, is authenticity, aren't we? And I suppose the man charged with making sure that that came through is the producer and director, Derek Dodge, who is on the line now. A documentary clearly has to have good subject matter, but it has to be told in the correct way, Derek. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that responsibility was really on my shoulders. And honestly, I kind of carried that with me as a bit of a burden Um, Hurley is so well known within the sport and everyone has this idea and this image of him. I really felt the responsibility to live up to that and to honor who Hurley really is. 
but also push him to show more of himself because that was what I was hoping this film would do, which was to peel back some of the layers and reveal another side of him. The temptation for many a filmmaker, I have to say, as we were saying with, with Patrick there, would have been to sensationalise, would, would have been to almost have a tabloid look at Hurley's life. A, a, a gay man in motor racing, particularly in the time that we're talking about, wasn't something that people expected and and look at the sport even today it's it's still not by any means uh, as easily accepted as it would be perhaps in other walks of life yeah it's it's a really fine line and and some people you know want to downplay it and say oh it doesn't matter i i don't care it doesn't matter to me and, and that's very valid um but the other side of it is that it does matter and visibility is important and giving hurley the power to be able to speak his voice and say that, yes, I'm gay, it doesn't detract at all from the accomplishments I've made, but it does add to who I am as a person. So in, in some respects, you know, we did want to play it up um, to give the stakes that were there in the 70s and the 80s and, and make the audience feel what it would have been like for Hurley to go through that, but while also not trying to make a piece of reality TV. So it was a bit of a fine line there. Five years in the making, as Hurley told us right at the beginning, is that a, a function of just how long it takes to put this sort of thing together? We started talking about crowdfunding this right at the very beginning of the project. Yeah, I, it was five years almost to the date uh, come June. And it, it's a bit of a mix of taking the time to get the right people involved and just the production list logistics. But it was also a bit of a, a journey with me and Hurley to to get to the point where he was comfortable and um, I could get the access that I needed and we could put all the pieces together. So, um, you know, we started this doing that, the crowdfunding, and, and I appreciate everyone's help in that because this really was a, a very small team. You know, even with, with Patrick involved, um, it was a, a small team that you know, we didn't have a lot of resources. So it's sort of a, a very true independent film in that sense. You, of course, have had exposure to motorsport before. You were you were at Le Mans. Um, you have seen the kind of passion that motorsport instills in people. Yeah, I, I went to Le Mans for the very first time with Patrick in 2014. It was my introduction to the sport. And I really, I mean, that, that's quite the introduction, right, to your first motorsports race ever is Le Mans. And, and I was really fascinated by the culture and the fans and the experience of the sights and the smells. And I really wanted to capture that in, in, a, in some way, um, but bringing some humanity to it. I was sort of fascinated by this idea of who are these people who get in these cars and do these amazing things. And I think by telling Hurley's story, I was able to peel back the layers of an onion on at least one of those drivers. How quickly did you get a picture in your mind of of how it was going to look and was and was the book a, a help or a hindrance in, in that respect it, it could go either way yeah it could go either way sean, sean cridlin's book is, is amazing it's it's this huge encyclopedia of hurley's career I and mean, hurley raced for 40 years and there was just no way i could do justice to every single race and every single every single manufacturer um or series that hurley raced in over for decades. So I was really thankful. You know, her, uh, Sean was writing Hurley's book in tandem uh, at the same time I was making the movie. And we talked a lot about what he was going to lean into in the, into the story and what I was going to lean out of, perhaps. And, um, and I'm glad because I think that the film 
tells a very specific story and and that's complementary to the book which is sort of the the full breadth of his career and, and he deserves to have both of those things i dare say like uh, any car designer or aerodynamicist or engineer you would like to have had more time and had you had more time you would have filled that but are you are you happy with the piece of work that you've that you've come to now have as the finished article <laughs> it's funny because i think uh like a lot of creators you create something and you walk away from it and it's hard to look back on it um I'm, but I'm, I'm very happy that it's it's out there and that people are able to experience it and and hurley's able to finally be able to have these conversations with people and, and share this with others and um i I'm, I'm happy for him that this is a moment especially this year with him being Grand Marshal at Le Mans, just it all feels like it's finally coming full circle. And that's interesting because that's something that Hurley talked about right at the beginning there about how his experience, how he's come to realise that his experience can influence others. And, and in no small way, that influenced him to tell the story in the first place. And that's an important part of this story. Yeah, and it's something I identify with. I'm I'm pretty much an introvert, and and like Hurley, I don't need I don't feel a need to stand up and speak my voice and and be heard. Uh, but sometimes we have to move beyond our comfort zones and realize that there is a power in what we have to say, and 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 the way we say it is probably the most important thing. And I think you know the way he wants to tell his story uh, through the book and through the movie uh, is very much indicative of who he is as a person. Derek Dodge, the producer and director of Hurley, the documentary. And before that, Patrick Dempsey. The telling of the story, the way it is put out there, as well as the content, Hurley Harewood, very, very important, especially if it's going to make a difference to people who are perhaps at the very darkest time in their lives. You know, suicide is one of, is one of the issues that is greatly affecting the world. In every 40 seconds in the U.S., somebody commits suicide. You know, it's it's returning veterans from, from the war theaters. It's the LGBT community. It's just a whole line of people that are affected by, by suicide. I think when you give kids a positive image to look up to, certainly a, a racing driver is sort of outside the normal role when you talk about somebody being gay and just because you're gay doesn't mean that you can't do certain things and i think uh racing is you know macho sport and it tells a good story different times we were talking about extremely different times though when your story began well you know when i started my career um 60 69 is when i started i was very careful about keeping my private life and my my professional life separate mm. You know, the cl close associates of mine, uh, teammates, team owners, they all knew what my story was. And I wasn't trying to, to hide it from anybody, but I just didn't, you know, want to get out there and, and be too obvious about it. So, uh, and I also was very um, protective of my fans. I didn't want to let them down and I didn't want to let uh, my sponsors down. So I just kept quiet. And I did the best job I could behind the wheel of a race car. And that was sort of my voice. And everybody, the industry, as we went on through the 70s and 80s, basically everybody that was associated with the racing industry knew what my story was. Mm. But still, I was reluctant to 
you know, make publicly come out because I didn't want to disappoint my fans and I didn't want to disappoint my my uh, um, sponsors. Since the book came out, the response to the book has been really super positive. And then we followed the book by the um, by the film, and the film. I haven't gotten one negative comment no. on the film or the book, and everybody's been super positive. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I just think the time is right that somebody, you know, gives sort of a a different image to the typical, you know, gay person. When we when you look back at the book and the film, are you? particularly with the film, as, as that's what we're talking about, as it's so new. Are you, are you pleased with the result? I'm, I'm very pleased, and I think, you know, part of that pleasure um, comes from the responses that I've gotten from a really a huge variance of, of people that have commented on it, um, people that I never would have thought would give a, you know, a hoot, suddenly comes up and said, you know, I took something from that film that really helped me with problems I was having in my own family, my kids or my wife. They So everybody takes something a little bit differently out of that film. And that's what I think and what also Patrick Dempsey thinks is a sign of a really good, a good film I've, or a good documentary. I've heard people say that this is a, a motor racing film, yes, but it's a film about people. It's a film about an individual's life. And the racing, you know, the racing uh, is a backdrop to it, mm. but it tells a personal story. It tells a personal journey from, you know, when I was, um, you know, growing up, what what my family was able to provide, the kind of, you know, education I had, and then moving into the racing part of it, you know, all of the tremendous um, effort that people put forth to give me the very, very best equipment to, to, to win races with. And then, you know, then the sort of the, the storyline behind it is that there was lots of barriers in my life when I was, when I was, you know, starting racing and I didn't let those barriers stop my forward progress. So I said, you know, if you're a good person and you're a good racing driver, then all the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. And as I go th- through life and when, when people talk to me about the film, the thing, you know, I say is you can do anything you want to do in life if you put your, uh, you know, mind behind it and the effort behind it and to become the best you can with what you have to work with. Mm-hmm. And don't let the barrier, you know, impede your forward pro- progress. We, we live in a more enlightened age now, Hurley, thank goodness. Um, and yet... Sports in general and motorsports in particular are still notoriously difficult. In some ways, we don't seem to have come very far at all in the last 30, 40 years. Well, I think I proved that wrong. <laughs> I've sort of, you know, I haven't really discussed it, you know, publicly, but, you know, the industry kind of knew where I was coming from and, and that did not impede my forward progress. If you take a look at, at, at sports in general, you know, Martina, Billie Jean King, those ladies came out, you know, back in the 70s, really. And uh, they are at the top of their game. Now, you know, they're every day you read in the paper where some sports figure in football or tennis or basketball 
comes out as being gay. And that's, I, I think those, you know, the sports industry and racing, as you said, in particular, is uh, the last sort of bastion for people to knock down the barriers. But it's happening. <laughs> people can look at me and say, well, look, you know, he's gay and look what he's done. In motorsport, the absolute meritocracy. If you're fast enough, you're good enough. Right. Yeah. I, love, I let my right foot be my voice. And as long as I'm doing that job really well, then nobody's going to say anything. Now that you've seen the response to the book in particular and the early responses to the film, do you ever think, man, I, I, I could have come out much earlier and maybe things would have, have changed in some way? Not really. I mean, I think the timing of this, the book and the film, is perfect for the conditions that are existing uh, in the, in all over the world, actually. And I think, you know, if, if I came out, you know, sooner, that would have been a, a distraction for me, I think. Um, now I'm retired from racing. I don't, you know, I, I don't have that distraction to worry about. And I can devote time and energy, um, you know, to, to bringing the, the, the message to, to kids and people in, in, you know, that need, you know, or want to ask my opinion about something. I couldn't do that while I was full-time racing. Mr. Haywood, you are a force of nature. I would encourage everyone to go and get the book and especially to watch the documentary as well. It's called Simply Hurley and it is worth a couple of hours of your time. Hurley Haywood, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That's this week's big interview, the movie Hurley. Uh, Shay Adams with us because we're going to talk about NASCAR. Good evening, Shay. Uh, not quite yet, sorry. No, she's not there. No, uh, but she will be in a moment. Um, can I do a couple of uh, things first, if you don't mind? Yes. Is one of them Formula 2? No, uh, not. Absolutely okay. not. We, we will talk about Formula 2 before the end of the show. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. Um, if you if you say so. Uh, the uh, Just to reiterate that I'll be driving a Radical SR3 at the weekend. Uh, Saturday is practice and qualifying and, uh, and, a, and a couple of races. Uh, and Sunday is one of the 50-minute races. Now, we're going to talk about this a bit more next week, but I'm very honoured to have been asked to be an ambassador for the British Motorsports Marshals Club. And um, effectively, this is my first outing as an ambassador at the weekend. And so the very lovely people at Radical have said uh, that um, they're supporting my commitment as an ambassador at the BMMC. Marshall's always welcome to visit the Radical Race Centre at any race weekend for tea and coffee or to fill up their flasks for the day. Furthermore, as part of our championship regulations, any championship fines enforced will be as they or have always been donated to the organisation. Um, so if you're marshalling at Dono this weekend, come down to the paddock if you can, fill your flask up. Uh, I don't, I've got no clue what the weather's going to be like, but uh, it should be, uh, whatever it's like, it means you'll be able to get a, a bit of a warm-up uh, to... To your flask, etc. Thanks to David Two Bruce, fabulous interview with uh, Hurley Harewood. That was super. Can't wait to see the film. Got to say thank you to Eve Hewitt uh, and who put a lot of work into getting all of the people together, and er- also Erica Abrams, uh, who was part of that 
uh, as well. Austin Hilliard Racing says, tuning in late, got carried away in the test lab this afternoon. Uh, Alex Brundle, thank you very much indeed. Uh, for your kind words, um, I could probably do with you and Dunno at the weekend. Uh, and what else? Laura Platman is now quite uh, annoyed. She hasn't been listening tonight. She's just seen the tweet about Patrick Dempsey and wishes she'd been listening in. And hello to Greer Martin, Representative Greer Martin, uh, who can't listen tonight as usual. Uh, as he is stuck on the floor of the house doing important work. Sir, uh, not a problem. I'm sure you'll be listening on the podcast and uh, keep doing that important work. Uh, are you going to, shall we do a bit of F2? Uh, no, let's move on to NASCAR. Uh, can't move on to NASCAR if you want she. She's not picking up her connection at the okay, moment. Okay, we'll uh, do a bit of Formula 2. That's why and I said let's do a bit of Formula 2. Well, I thought you were trying to talk me out of it. Right. We mentioned uh, earlier on the show that we we're going to talk about Formula 2. We also mentioned the parallels between Formula 2 and Formula 1. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I wanted to point out was that Formula 2 was ruined by DRS. Ah. Did you think Formula 1 was ruined by DRS? A lot of people thought it was made by DRS. I think it would have been uh, just as exciting if there'd been less DRS. Okay. Fewer. Um, no, less. Okay. It's not quantifiable. Uh, so Formula 2, always going brilliantly for the first mm. three laps, and then it all went horrible. Uh, and Mick Schumacher was okay but nothing really more than okay and the driver who started from pole in race one finished as the winner of race two but didn't win race one and didn't start from pole in race two uh so that shows that there was some overtaking okay can we move on to nascar now if you'd like do we have shay adam hang on a second if i say hello shay adam in fort lauderdale Hello, John Hindoff and Thrapston. Yay, fantastic. <laughs> Sorry about that. We had an errant computer that didn't want to talk to the world. Um, have you seen the Hurley docker yet? No, not yet. I found it last night on Amazon, but by that time it was about 9 o'clock at night, and I figured mm, probably should save it for tonight. Mm. Yeah, good call. Good call. I think it's. Uh, I've seen parts of it, parts of the early... Uh, parts of the early... Cut, uh, Derek, we spoke to Derek a long time ago, Derek Dodge. So uh, when they were trying to crowdfund it, uh, I, I, it's great. It's great. The book, I mean, the book is a £10 monster straight <laughs> away. Um, brought that back from the States. Thanks to Carol Brink for sorting that out and to Hurley for signing it for me. Extraordinary stuff. Um, let's move into NASCAR. Shall we talk with the start with the trucks, Tim? Uh, yes, because obviously this was a weekend we where we had all three series together. Yes. And uh, the trucks was won by... <laughs> Kyle Bush. Okay, and, and the uh, Nextel, whatever it's called. It's not Nextel anything. Next Generation, I don't know. Xfinity, <laughs> was Xfinity, that what you looking for? NASCAR Xfinity yes. Series, there we mm. go. That was won by... Kyle Bush. And how many races has Kyle Bush won this season? Oh, gosh. Well, let me put it to you this way. If we look at the Gandor Outdoor Truck Series, because I know you like it when I call it its full name, Tim, 
how many of the full season drivers have won a race so far this year out None. of the five that they've had? None at all. Just nope, just Austin Hill. Oh, just Austin one. Hill. So four races won by Kyle Busch so far. And if we move into the Xfinity series, we have had six races. How many of them have been won by Kyle Busch? That would be three. Three. So he's really screwing up the uh, minor series in terms of points going on down there because the race leader in terms of uh, points so far in both the trucks and the Xfinity, they've not won a race. And where are they this coming weekend? Bristol. Uh-oh. It's going to be a fun one. Mm. Oh, it's Bristol, <laughs> is it? Now, obviously, yep. with Kyle having won two races at the weekend, uh, and I've just given away that he didn't win the third race, but we'll come on to that <laughs> later, uh, I thought this would be a great opportunity to uh, hear Kyle talking about uh, those races. Okay. Unfortunately, the press conferences after both the uh, Gander Outdoor Truck Series and the Xfinity Series uh, were dominated by elderly newspaper journalists from Dallas asking questions about something called VHT. Oh, boy. What's VHT? Is this something you put in your tyres? No. Not intentionally. Well, I mean, you would, but you wouldn't spray it directly on your tires, right, Tim? Definitely not. <laughs> I, I wouldn't spray it anywhere yeah. un- unless I was trying to catch something. <laughs> and it is, very, it is very catchy. Is this not a tire treatment that you put on to... Uh, it, it sounds like the sort of stuff you're not allowed to put on to your slot car tires or your RC racing tires. It's a track treatment. Oh, well, so yeah. it is that as well. Then. So that's what it is. Yeah, I've heard about this. It's it's used quite frequently in drag racing, and if you've ever had the misfortune to go stand out by the Christmas tree in the middle of both of the cars getting ready to go, they spray the stuff over the entirety of the drag strip. So if you're standing there for about two minutes without moving your feet, you then go to try and move your foot and find that you can't. Well, you leave um, your foot, you I, leave your shoes. This sounds yeah, like the voice of experience, Shay. Yeah, just a little bit. Just uh, just had that happen to me at Palm Beach International Raceway a couple of years ago. <laughs> uh, did you get your shoes back? I did, thankfully. The black never quite came off, though. Mm. No, never does. Never does. Why were they talking about whatever it was? VHT, wasn't it, is what you said? Uh, because they were using it at the weekend. On although what? On the track. Although... Oh. On all of the track, or just the groove? I think it was only on the high line from what they were saying. Is that right? right? Okay. That's interesting. I, I uh, hadn't read up enough on this, to be honest. It's not it, the first time it's been used at uh, NASCAR, because uh, it was first used in 2017 at Bristol, which is where we're going next. Hey! It's sometimes used um, to open up a groove, to bring in a second groove. So put it on the high line would make sense but it gets on your tires and it stays on your tires and it it changes the way you where your tires interact with the circuit with the surface mm. let's move on to the cup race okay yeah and again i Which, can't remember the sponsor uh monster energy monster energy uh, wins yep. the cup team, race team yeah the, oh, come on Really? Uh, who won this one? <laughs> um, this was won by 
Denny Hamlin. So yes. it was a mix-up, but still it's uh, Joe Gibbs Racing domination so far on the air. Between Denny winning the 500 and then winning at Texas, Kyle Busch with two wins so far this year. The only team that even comes close to them is Penske with two wins for Keselowski and one for Joey Logano. But no other team has yet found victory lane out of the seven races so far. It's been quite entertaining. I do have to say, though, uh, Jimmy Johnson got the pole position. He looked well back on form. He led a lot of laps over the course of the weekend. He was quite impressive. Uh, Blaney was also another young gun who was doing well until things went awry for him. Kyle Larson went into the wall. Uh, Yeah, there were a lot of people who didn't really look so good at the end of the race, but Denny Hamlin did look good. Uh, so let's hear from Denny talking about uh, what for him was not a perfect race. We ran out of fuel. I know, it's amazing. Uh, I passed pit road and we ran out. That cost us, I don't know, six, seven, it was a lot. It seemed like a lot. And then I tried to come to pit road hot and I about spun out and I had to let off the brake to keep from spinning out and then I knew I wasn't going to make pit road so I had to check up and then lose another four or five seconds under another green flag sequence. And then, um, and then we just, I was just beating my head against the <laughs> steering wheel thinking, man, we're going to finish bad with a really fast car. And, um, we just kept digging and Chris kept doing a good job on encouraging us that we had a long way to go. And we kept passing cars and passing cars. And I think at some point we passed everyone for sure. Um, but, uh, once we got the clean air in the front, uh, the 20 pulled off for his pit stop, it allowed me to be more aggressive, uh, with the way I was driving and then we made a really good adjustment there at the end that got our car better. So really the only time our car you know, kind of struggled handling-wise was when we were in that pack of three with our teammates. Um, and, and, you know, had we had the balance we had earlier in the day, I felt like we could have probably got around them. But certainly we, were, uh, uh, we, we had a great car all day, just a, you know, l- you know, a bunch of hiccups in the middle of it. And we just uh, were, were fast enough to overcome uh, everything that, you know, kind of got thrown at us. Okay, yeah, past everybody then. You had a giggle <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, I did, because obviously if you won the race, you passed everyone. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, what else you got there, Tim? Uh, who's going to win this weekend in Bristol? It's a lottery. Um, I'm really hoping for Jimmy Johnson, just because he hasn't won in almost a year. more No, more than a year. Um, and he tends to go well at Bristol, but you can't deny the uh, Toyota power and the Ford power going on right now. Looking at the top 10 of points, only two Chevys. So it's likely going to be one of the uh, first two who comes away with a win. Okay. Uh, this weekend, IndyCar is where? Barber Motorsport Park. So uh, JoJo, Joseph Newgarden should be pretty happy with that reality. And uh, it's going to be a good weekend for all of them because, of course, Barber is normally after Long Beach, so they normally have to deal with the crash damage coming from the street course and then go to Barber Motorsport Park, where you've got a lot of runoff area, and you still can't hit stuff, though. You can ask other people about that. Um, But the exciting thing is going to be that now they have that little bit of pressure taken off. They're not doing the eastward swing. They get to go play in Barber and then go out to Long Beach. And uh, there's a couple of IMSA series there as well. Yeah, the um, Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge by Yokohama makes their season debut this weekend. 
it's going to be a really good field. 30 cars, a lot of good Platinums, and I mean, a really good field of gold cars, too, got to say. We've also got the Lamborghini Super Trofeo Series making their first race of the season. If you're looking for people to watch there, well, you've got more than enough options, including Connor Daly coming back to race with Precision Performance Motorsport. And you've got Corey Lewis, the defending champion, coming back with Richard Antonucci, another champion of the series from years past. Also noticed McKay Snow's name on the list. Ah. So we will still have a snow in that championship. And then we've got Ferrari Challenge down at Sebring. So it's going to be racing everywhere you look. Um, uh, should mention well we're on IMSA now um so let's mention the Long Beach entry list that is out oh okay um it's 19 cars no surprises whatsoever 11 DPIs the only question mark as far as uh drivers were concerned was for Junkos racing it's going to be Kyle Kaiser joining up with Will Owen for that race this weekend that'll be entertaining to keep an eye on next weekend I should say eight GTLM cars all the usual characters are there and it's going to be a very busy condensed schedule because of course we've got the two-hour practice session to kick things off on Friday morning so we're going to be the track cleaners unfortunately John mm-hmm. Seven forty in the morning is when we get things started then we're not on track again until late in the afternoon with the 45-minute practice session and then qualifying. And then, of course, we go green for the race on Saturday afternoon. So it's a lot of track time in terms of the amount of racing that we're actually going to get. But I'm not entirely sure how useful it's going to be because there are going to be a lot of different tire compounds laid down on the circuit over the course of the weekend. And that's not something that the Michelin tired prototype teams will have ever dealt with before. Oh, okay. Um, and... A bit of BOP news? Do we dare do BOP news or will it just set everybody off? No, we can, we can do it. It's not too bad. Uh, in terms of the prototype, there were boost changes in terms of the ratios for the Acuras, the Mazdas, and the Nissan. The Cadillac had 10 kilos of weight added. The Mazda had five taken off and the Acura 20 kilos taken off. So it's going to be a very nimble car, particularly thinking that that's the car that won the pole position a year ago with Juan Pablo Montoya. Fuel was adjusted for uh, the Acura, the Cadillac, and the Mazda. The Nissan was left alone. It, it's pretty big swings in terms of the Acura and the Cadillac, five liters and four liters uh, in terms of each car. But the good thing is that with all the weight that they've had taken out and then added, it should balance out pretty well. GTLM, we weren't expecting to see any big changes because the slowest Porsche won Sebring. We didn't see any big changes, but the biggest change is 10 kilograms taken out of the Porsche, making it the second lightest car in class. Uh, No, third lightest car. The Ford is still the heaviest car, which is not unexpected. The boost ratios, though, were adjusted for the Ford. So that's going to be interesting to see how that comes into play because the Ford was so strong at Sebring and Daytona. And minor fuel adjustments for both the Ford and the Porsche going forward, that shouldn't be a huge impact. Uh, Before we leave, Imsa, I want to turn the clock back a little bit to the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring presented by Advanced Auto Parts, which we covered obviously over on IMSA Radio, and it'll be IMSA Radio next week for the Bubba Grand Prix at Long Beach, although we will be broadcasting here on RS1 at our normal time from our booth uh, overlooking the start-finish line at the Long Beach uh, Bubba Grand Prix. Uh, some interesting comments, Shay, you were down in the booth, so you heard this, but what are two people asking uh, about these questions and I, I thought it'd be a good idea to dig this up so we've dig, 
dug up uh, Scott Atherton's questions again and pulled them out of our archive. Uh, uh, talking about DPI and LMP 2020. And the first question I, I asked him was, when are we going to expect to see LMP, the next generation, on track in IMSA competition? It is scheduled to begin competition in January 2022. When does the when does the, the discussions with manufacturers start? They've started, and uh, and that's the lead time. When you work backwards from a, from a Rolex 24 in January of 22, and you back up to the appropriate time when things need to be decisions made, budgets established, you know, buy-in at boardroom level type situations, it's none too early. Uh, so, as I say, the conversations have begun, and we've got a, uh, an extensive process that involves extracting information from our manufacturers. You know, what should the next generation include technically, performance-wise, styling-wise? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variables that uh, we can either retain or alter from the wonderful example that we have today. How difficult is that working with the manufacturers, the OEMs, when things are moving so quickly nowadays, even for the major manufacturers, the volume manufacturers, things seem to be coming on a shorter product cycle. We have the benefit of having great relationships with many of our OEs. There's 19 mainstream luxury and high-performance manufacturers involved with us. Uh, I don't think there's an exception out there where we don't have close ties with you know true decision makers, whether domestically, internationally, or all of the above. And and we can have some really candid conversations with them. And, and you're right, the demands on all of the manufacturers now, uh, not only for here and today, but the technology of what's coming and the capital requirements to fund that development. So it means your motorsports has to be relevant and it has to be sustainable and there has to be a, a value proposition represented yes. that, uh, that can command their embrace. But you're in a better position than you ever have been because you've got DPI to show now and go, do you remember when we talked about this before and it was all a bit sort of in the air, it was a bit in the ether, we yeah. did it. Frankly, it's worked because there's no point in hiding that light under the bushel, Scott. That yep. secret's out. It's a big advantage. And uh, there's, you know, when you're working on, on assumption and simulation and yeah. estimates and all the things you just described versus an actual example that's up and running and, to your point, has proven to be very successful. And I think it's the value proposition that's represented by this formula that just works. And we've said from the start, you know, because we, we want to work closely with our strategic partners, the ACO. Uh, in a perfect world, you know, we'd have a common global solution. But we've said from the beginning that if that global solution requires us to abandon some of the core elements of what we believe has made DPI successful, candidly, it's not an option for us. No. Now, Gerard Naveau is, is uh, the, the man at the head of the WEC and he and the president of the ACOPF on here this weekend, of course. There was a big, wide-open door given by Gerard Naveau in his comments and the releases the other day about the potential of bringing the two top classes together somewhere around 2022. What's IMSA's point of view on that? Well, that would be first prize for all involved, no Simple question. Simple as that. Yeah, it, and, and I... I don't want to create 
false hope here, but I think for all the variables that you've described, the current state of play, both with within the ACO and the FIA and with our own process that uh, candidly is early days, but still, when you look at the setting as we have it today, you know, I think there is reason for hope. Uh, the good news is we're all together this weekend. We yes. had some great conversations. Uh, the, the relationship has always been strong, yes. uh, certainly is today. There's always speculation about that. I think it just it makes for good uh, conversation around a cold beer. But we have a lot of common threads between us. We're essentially in the same business. Um, our focus is solely on North America. They have a much broader focus. Of course. Uh, we get that. But, uh, you know, in light of all the things that have changed within the automotive industry that we've just discussed, um, it's almost a requirement as far as we're concerned that uh, we get together. Can I play devil's advocate just for a second? So there's no recalcitrance at all in that thought from from IMSA to say, oh, they, they might steal away one of our, you know, the, the dangling of Le Mans for manufacturer X, Y, or Z. Oh, not, not really happy about that. No, and it's, yeah, I, I, I'm going to come back to the relationships I referred to in that you, we'd like to believe that when we have these conversations with decision makers, not only the manufacturers that are currently actively competing with us, but others that have expressed interest, that you're getting factual, honest, yes. transparent response. And they are very outspoken in uh, their appreciation for what the DPI model represents today, and equally so, their eagerness to see a DPI 2.0, for lack of a better yes. uh, way to describe it, um, that does embrace some of the elements that the current example doesn't do. Um, yeah. And, you know, what do I mean by that? Well, hybrid technology, for instance, you know, that if you think ahead to 2022, that's probably inherent across just about every example of automotive technology in some form or another. Is that is that doable at a price point that keeps the manufacturers here in DPI at the moment and potential private ears? Is that achievable at a price point that, that isn't stratospheric? Because that's clearly the worry. We believe so. And it's early days in that process, but hybrid technology can take many, many different forms. And the current LMP1 model, which is an extreme example, obviously has a, an extreme financial implication connected to it. Uh, we have no interest in replicating that. But there are other opportunities that can be embraced that are relevant and are meaningful, but all very much cost-capped, cost-controlled, and fit what would be described as the... Uh, the same mindset, the same philosophy that is uh, represented by the DPI today. Scott Atherton talking to us at uh, the IMSA Mobile One Sebring event a couple of uh, weeks ago now, Shane. You were listening You were listening into that at the time. I, I thought there were some very interesting comments there in a, in a situation, a lot of people still talking about what might or might not happen, but it seems that IMSA at least have got their ducks in a row. Yeah, and the level of, not confidence, that's almost the wrong word, but it's the only one I can think of right now in terms of the attitude that IMSA has towards potentially having their team swiped away by somebody else. They're not, because the product that IMSA offers is incontrovertible in terms of the evidence going forward that we have great racing. We provide for the teams. People are happy in the paddock. 
So Scott's not worried about other teams being swept away by the idea of going to Lamar. Look at a team like Park Place. It's a perfect example that you've got Patrick Lindsay running in the World Endurance Championship, going to Lamar for the second time this year because he's run the whole super season. But he's back in IMSA full time as well, doing GTD because this is a it, it's a family, and that's the sort of stuff that we provide. So IMSA is trying to help their teams, not just drop a load of regulations on them and tell them, okay, go make a go make a card. Good luck. And, and that's good news for IMSA. It's also good news for their manufacturers. And, and as Scott pointed out there, they've now got something to show. It's not just something that's sitting in the ether. They have a DPI class that has been that has been successful. Exactly. And that's the biggest thing to offer forward as proof. You can say, look at all the different people that are winning. And it's not because of different BOP manufacturing these wins for the different classes or different cars, no matter what you want to say. Look at even what we were just talking about with GTLM and the the balance of performance that's been issued for Long Beach. The slowest car won Sebring. Did IMSA go through a massive swing to try and put everything right? No, they did very subtle changes because at the end of the day, you look at the racing and the racing is superb. That's about all we have time for tonight. Thank you to Sheer Adam, to all our other guests, and particularly uh, to Hurley Harewood, to uh, Derek Dodge, and uh, to Patrick Dempsey, uh, as well as Will Brown from Radical. Now, don't go away, because coming up next, we've got an extra programme. I'm on overtime tonight as we preview the Super GT Championship. We look a bit at the Super Taikyu as well. Uh, RJ O'Connell the editor of Super GT World, joins us next on RS1. Uh, there's no time to explain. The, Donning, the, the Donnington, hmm, let's do that again. The Llama is off the Donnington tomorrow for a bit of SR3 testing and then racing at the weekend. Good night. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.